So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. If indeed this is a promise from God, it's a promise from God that you can ask for anything you want in my name and it will be given to you then why is it that we don't see more Christians realizing or experiencing that promise? Welcome to the Elisa Childers Podcast. I'm so excited to introduce you to my guest today, Alan Parr. He's the host of The Beat by Alan Parr YouTube channel, which has just exploded. It's such a massive uh, apologetics and theology uh, channel on YouTube where he answers so many unique and difficult questions about Christianity and the Bible and about God. And uh, Alan, it's just so great to have you on the show today. Thanks so much for being here. Oh, listen, I'm so excited to be here. I love what you're doing and look forward to a great conversation. And uh, uh, hopefully we'll be able to get you on my channel as well sometime. So thanks for having me. (laughs) That would be fun. And, you know, the one thing about your YouTube channel, and we were chatting about this a little bit before we went on the air, is you tackle unique questions about Christianity. You tackle a lot of really tough questions that people probably would be more uh, wanting to kind of shy away from, but you're not scared. You're not scared of like any question that, that Christians might yeah. be asking. So definitely recommend your channel for all of those types of questions. And we're going to get into a few of those to, today just to give people a little taste of what you do. Uh, but just to introduce my audience to you, if, if anyone's unfamiliar with the work that you do, I would just love to hear about your testimony. Were you raised in a Christian home? How did you come into relationship with the Lord? Uh, just give us a little backstory. Yeah, sure. So um, I uh, was fortunate to um, grow up with Christian parents, although my dad wasn't a Christian um, until a little bit later in his life. And due to a series of events, uh, my father led my sister and I to the Lord whenever I was eight years old. And so at eight years old, I came to know the Lord, but obviously I didn't have like a really good relationship with Christ until I was about 19. So between eight and 19, I wasn't necessarily a wild child, wasn't out there doing anything crazy, but I was doing things that teenagers would do, getting into trouble. And then when I went off to college, kind of had that same lifestyle. So even though I went to church, grew up to, grew up in church, I never read my Bible, didn't really pray very much. I just kind of was a Christian by name, but it wasn't until... I went to college and um, somebody actually discipled me and really taught me what it really meant to be a Christian. And it was at that point that I started to really take my walk with Christ very seriously, started putting away some of the practices that I was involved in, in terms of uh, just different activities and sinful things that I was doing in college. And uh, so around 19 or 20 or so is when I got really serious about the Lord. And then I actually ended up um, graduating from college and started working as an electrical engineer for uh, Ford Motor Company. 
And it wasn't until it wasn't uh, two years into my career where I actually felt like the Lord was calling me into full-time ministry. And at that time, I was like, God, are you serious? Like, I just landed this job and I finally was out of school, had money to spend. But I started teaching the Bible on um, Tuesday nights at a Bible study, got a chance to preach a couple of times. And it was like, for the first time in my life, I knew that this was what God was calling me to do. And I was like super crystal clear on that. So now I had to make a decision. Am I going to just go the career route, make a lot of money? Or am I going to follow this call where I may not make much of anything as a minister? So thankfully, I um, uh, followed my call to ministry, came down to Dallas, uh, got into Dallas Theological Seminary, where I graduated from in 2004. And um, ever since then, I've been working on staff, uh, either part-time or full-time for, I would say, from 2004 to about 2000 and. Uh, let's see, about 16, maybe, no, about to about 2014, actually. So in 2014, I had this vision like from God, like that I could get online and start a YouTube channel. And at that time, I didn't know anything about YouTube, didn't know anything about creating videos, nothing. Like I was totally clueless, but I knew I wanted to have a bigger platform to share my gift with the world instead of just the local church. And so that's when I started researching YouTube, learning the ins and outs of the platform, learning about um, you know how to create videos and how to shoot videos and lighting and editing and all the different things that go into running a YouTube channel. And at the time I had no idea that the channel was gonna grow the way it has now. I was just excited to have a platform to get my gift out to the world. And now five years later, God has blessed the, the channel to really grow and reach people all over the world. So that's kind of a short version of how I got into YouTube. That's so great. I, I um, I'm very blessed that I didn't have to do all the research stuff because my husband did all that. Like when COVID hit, and and he's a road manager, so normally he's traveling, but he was home, and so he's like, I gotta, I gotta do something. So he started watching all these tutorials. So he set up my whole YouTube studio, and I was like, Well, I hope you Which don't looks go. Great, by the way. Thank you. But I'm like, yeah. I hope you don't go back on the road because he, I mean, I know a few things, but he's really the one who did all this research to to make it look the way it does. And so I do the content and he does the aesthetic there. So that works out really good for us. But you, you do have such a great YouTube channel. Uh, and like I said, you tackle really tough and unique questions. And so we're going to give uh, my audience a little taste of that today. Um, we're gonna, we've talked through some questions we can uh, address and just give a biblical perspective on, because I think sometimes we hear the the charge from either the atheist world or we hear the charge from people who have deconverted well we you know we can't ask any tough questions or Christians don't like to be asked tough questions and that's what I like about you is that you're not afraid of the tough questions and so we're going to go through some of these and so this is one that I think a lot of people have had to think through um, some have sadly had to think through it because they've been through this personal experience and others I think a question like this can actually be something that if it's not answered properly can cause them to maybe doubt God's goodness or something along those lines. And so the question is, is do babies go to heaven if they die? So so help us with that one, Alan. Yeah, yeah. So that's, a, once again, it's a very common question. And, um, you know, it's one that, you know, we have to be very, very sensitive towards because as you said, sadly, there's a lot of people that have had that experience. I've got a three-year-old and a two-year-old, and I could literally not imagine, you know, what how I would deal with that if 
um, you know, if something, God forbid, were to happen to them. So the, the bigger answer to this question is we really don't know 100% for sure because the Bible does not clearly say babies who die go to heaven or babies who die before this age, right? People throw around this idea of the age of accountability. It's that mystical age that if you're after this age, then you should be able to understand the gospel and uh, either accept it or reject it. But then before this age, um, you know, God doesn't expect you to really understand the gospel and therefore you can't be responsible for it. But nobody really knows what that age of accountability right. is. That's kind of a man-made, man-made thing. So, you know, there's some scriptures that people typically point to, to try to suggest that yes, indeed, babies go to heaven. So I'll throw a couple of them out there. You know, people will say, well, Jesus, you know, said, let the little children come to them, come to me. And uh, if you have the faith of a little children, you know, these little children, then you can, you know, enter the kingdom. And, uh, you, know, you know, obviously Jesus had a heart for children, but that scripture alone, even though it expresses God's heart for children and Jesus's love for children, doesn't necessarily answer the question clearly, okay, yes, all babies go to heaven, right? And another, another one that's probably the most popular one is in 2 Samuel when David, um, his child that he had out of an adulterous affair with Bathsheba died, and then David expressed his desire to, uh, to see his child again and says, hey, I, um, he can't come back to me, but one day I will go to where he is. And once again, as much as we want to point to that and say, okay, this is a proof text. We have to be fair. As, as, as Bible students and scholars, we have to be fair and be careful that we don't read into the text what we want it to say, and we have to let the text speak for itself. And so David was basically expressing his desire to one day be reunited with his deceased son. But that verse doesn't say it's a guarantee. So I go through, you know, in my video, I go through a couple of different um uh, you know, verses, one of which people might say is, well, yes, that baby will go to heaven if that baby was elect, right? So if, you know, we look at Ephesians 1, where it says that God has chosen us before the foundation of the world, well, then if that is indeed the case, that God has selected different people to be saved before the foundation of the world, then whether that person dies at 99 or nine months, if they're elect, yes, they're going to go to hell, heaven, excuse me. But that doesn't answer the question about the babies that are not elect, right? Like, so if a child is dies at three months and they never got a chance to reject the gospel, then what happens to them? So my premise is this. This falls into the category of Deuteronomy 29, 29. Let the secret things of the Lord belong mm. to the Lord. There's certain things that he has not revealed to us, but he has revealed to us what? That he's loving that he's yeah. trustworthy, that he's kind, that he is merciful, that he's long-suffering, that he's compassionate, he's faithful. And so if we look at those characteristics of God, I would lean towards the idea that, yeah, babies that do die are going to go to heaven. I think that's such a great final point you make there because sometimes I think it can be our tendency or our knee-jerk reaction to come to the scriptures to try to prove that God is good or prove that God is just or moral. But I think a better way to approach the scriptures is knowing like we're going to we're going to learn about the nature of character and character of God and he is just. He is fair. He's not going to do something that is unjust or unfair because that would go against his nature. And so whatever that is as it applies to this situation and really anybody's 
eternal destination. I think we have to start with the premise of knowing that God is just and He's good. And uh, and I think sometimes we miss that, or, or even new Christians miss that, or people who are maybe trying to process difficult questions but um, are not laying a good foundation within which to understand who God is. And so I, I like that answer, and I, I, I agree with that. I think that, that that's a good, a good way to come about it. Um, the next question we're going to talk about has to do with sin and Christians. And so I think this is this has to be, I know this has to be such a huge question for so many Christians yeah. because all of us struggle with sin in, on some level or another. And I've even thought about this. When when is a sin considered living in sin? Because I, I yeah. sin every day and you know I don't want to, but I do. And yeah. you know, some of those sins are repeated. And so when does that move into that category of living in sin? And uh uh, and so I'd love to get your perspective on that. So the question is, can a Christian live in sin and still go to heaven? Yeah. Now, you know, that's probably one of the most popular questions that I get asked along with, you know, once saved, always saved, eternal mm -hmm. security. You know, these are questions that people ask all the time because they're very, very concerned that, you know, if they are performing certain things or involved in certain sins that they may not go to heaven. So, you know, here is the way that I always understand this question. First and foremost, once again, I try to be biblical with everything that I do. When we look at the scriptures, the Apostle Paul clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, along with going into chapter 3, he really breaks down um, three different classes of, of men, uh, men, men or women, mankind. So, you know, you have the uh, the, the unbeliever. So those are people that just don't don't believe in Christ, and then you have the uh, the actually four classes of men. Excuse me. So you have the unbeliever. So he's unspiritual, right? And then you have the baby Christian who just gets saved and they don't know much. Then you have the carnal Christian, and then you have the spiritual Christian, right? And that's not our job to go around and start saying, "Well, you're a baby Christian, you're a carnal <laughs> Christian, you're a spiritual Christian," as we try to do sometimes, but. The Bible clearly allows for different levels of spirituality. Now, along the lines of the carnal Christian, even Paul himself, strangely enough, says, hey, I am carnal. I am fleshly. I mean, he calls himself that and he even talks about his own personal struggle with sin. So the question is this, whenever we're struggling with sin, are we indeed doing that? Are we struggling with it? Are mm. we wrestling with it? Are we experiencing anxiety over it? Are we experiencing conviction of the Holy Spirit as a result of that? Um, if so, you know, does it grieve our heart whenever we do this? Do we confess it to the Lord? Do we make attempts to try to repent and turn from it, but we're still struggling with it? You know, I would say that if somebody is genuinely struggling with sin, I would want to believe that indeed, yes, they're still saved because if they weren't struggling and wrestling with it, then there would be no conviction over mm. that particular sin. There's a reason why they feel bad about it and feel ashamed and and, and struggle with it. So, um, you know, can a Christian sh uh, struggle with sin? Yes, I believe that we can, because Paul said in Romans 7 that he struggled with sin personally. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Jesus talks about that as well. As, now, the question is also, how do we know if we're living in sin or not, right? Mm -hmm. And this is a deeper question. I think whenever we start to 
commit a sin without any sort of remorse, or if we are making plans for sin, for instance, living together before Mm. marriage, um, you know, uh, purposely giving ourselves into a homosexual relationship. That is an example of somebody who is making plans Mm. to sin. We're, we're, we're already saying in advance, I'm going to stay in this situation and therefore I don't care what the Bible says, right? That to me is a much more dangerous place for a professing Christian to be than just simply a Christian who's struggling with sin. Um, and then I'll make this last point. Uh, even though we may struggle with sin, and it's possible for Christians to struggle with repetitive sin, we have to understand that there's going to be major consequences for our sin. Even though we may be forgiven, we can't escape the discipline of God and the consequences that may come along with our decision to stay in a particular sin. Yeah, that's good. I, I, I don't know who said this. I just remember reading this somewhere or hearing it somewhere where somebody said, if we could sin our way out of salvation, we would have all already done it. You know, like Amen to that. I, yes. I would have that, that would already happened a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> so that's good. That's good. That. Um, okay. This yeah. is this is one I think that is really relevant to a lot of people who grew up in church. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about the prosperity gospel in a moment, but this sort of relates with the prosperity gospel. And that is, you know, there's this verse where Jesus says, Whatever you ask in my name will be done. And people interpret that to mean you can basically speak something into existence, essentially. If you use the name of Jesus, if you speak it, your words have the creative power to manifest that reality. And that is what a lot of people say this verse means. And so the question that I'd love to ask you is, can we ask for anything in Jesus' name and it will be done? Yeah. So, you know, exactly. And, you know, that's the whole, um, you know, positive confession and, and, and things related to the word of faith movement, which we'll talk about in just a moment. But um, the first question I would ask somebody is, how's that working for you? Right. Mm. How's that? How's that working for you? Um, is that it, here's the thing. If indeed this is a promise from God, it's a promise from God that you can ask for anything you want in my name and it will be given to you. Then why is it that we don't see more Christians realizing or experiencing that promise, right? If I say, hey, Lord, I want a new Ferrari in Jesus' name and I end my prayers in Jesus' name, right? Why don't I have that Ferrari tomorrow? Or let's just get more spiritual. God, I want to have a million YouTube subscribers tomorrow mm. so I can reach more people for you, Lord. Right. You know, my, my motivation is right in Jesus' name, right? So clearly it doesn't work just by saying in Jesus' name or claiming something. It just doesn't work that way. Um, so we have to ask ourselves the question, what does that really mean? So when we look at the context of what Jesus is saying, what I personally believe is happening in that passage is that Jesus is giving a unique power to his apostles and basically saying, hey, I trust you. I have trained you. Uh, you've I've modeled for you what ministry is all about. And so whatever you, Thomas, 
Matthew, John, Bartholomew, Peter, James, right? Whatever you ask for in my name, therefore it will be done. He knows that they are going to ask for things in ministry after he leaves in accordance with his divine will. And he also knows that in this dispensation of time, yes, there's going to be certain miraculous powers that they are going to need to be able to have in order to authenticate the message. Because at that time, a lot of people wouldn't listen to the message without seeing the miracles. We know that's why Jesus did a lot of miracles. Yes, he wanted to heal people, but he knew that if I could do this miracle, then people would now listen to my message. So I think that that verse is really more so um, contextual and a promise to the apostles and not a general promise to every single Christian that will live. I've also heard, uh, which I think goes with what you just said, and I'd love to get your opinion on this. I've heard uh, interpretations of this, or maybe it's more of an application of, you know, basing on the context and the the interpretation that you just gave, you know, the application for us today would be, and I'd love to get your opinion on this, is that even if this does apply to us in some broader sense, it, that's what Jesus is saying. To ask for something in his name means to be asking according to his will, because you can't ask in his name for something that goes against his name, right? You can't ask for something yeah. that goes against his will and his nature, and and it be true. And and so, would you would yeah. you agree with that application? I would exactly, yeah. And in my video that I deal with on this, I do talk about that. Where you know, okay, so we know that this verse in its original context was more than likely Jesus talking to his apostles. But okay, that that could be true for just about all the gospels, right? So right. how does that apply to like us, right? So yes, I do believe that for us. We have to check our motives in terms of why I'm asking for something. And we have to really ask ourselves the question, is this really in accordance with God's perfect will for my life? And then the last question we really need to ask is, how is what I'm asking for going to advance the kingdom of God? Because we we like to ask God for a lot of things, but God is interested in one thing, as Tony Evans says, the kingdom agenda. He wants to push his agenda, his kingdom and forward his kingdom. So if what I'm asking God to do isn't really going to contribute to moving the kingdom forward, then it might not necessarily be in his will. Yeah, that's good stuff. All right, well, let's get into the prosperity gospel. It's sometimes referred to that way. Sometimes it's referred to as the word of faith movement. Uh, Just a little background on myself. I, I didn't grow up in the prosperity gospel, but I was exposed to it. I think ideas just kind of in the the culture, in, in the Christian culture. And then I really sort of uh, was faced with it when I was a young adult, when I was uh, living, I'd moved from California to New York and I'd gone to some different meetings um, that, you know, they don't, it's not like they put up a sign and say, hey, we're the prosperity gospel. We're going to, you know, teach you this other thing over here. So you just go to the, whatever the big meeting is that everybody was going to. And I just remember being so struck by how different the biblical interpretations were, because I had studied the Bible my whole life, and all of these verses that were so precious to me were all of the sudden being applied to money. And I'm and I'm going back going, I it never even occurred to me to make that specific Bible verse about money. And of course, prosperity right. gospel isn't just about money, but give us a little bit of a definition of what is the prosperity gospel and how does it differ from the true gospel? Yeah, so um, this is a loaded question, but you know, the prosperity gospel is the idea that 
within the sacrifice of Christ and within the atonement of Christ, there are inherent promises that we have the right to claim as believers. So we have the right as believers to claim divine healing. Yeah. And we also have the right to claim um, prosperity. And so um, there's a ton of scriptures that they will point to, mostly out of context. And I'll give people one where they'll say, you know, one of their famous ones is by his stripes, we are healed. You know, Isaiah chapter 53. And so they look at that and they'll say, okay, well, by the stripes that Jesus took on his back, we're healed. And they don't even look at the fact that throughout the entire book of Isaiah, the word healing is referring to a spiritual healing. When Jesus, or excuse me, when God is talking about, for I have healed Israel, mm -hmm. right? He's not talking about physical sin. He's, talk, he's, talk, he's not talking about physical. He's talking about, I've, sin, I've healed their sinfulness, their waywardness, their backsliding. And so we can't just look at that word healing throughout the whole book of Isaiah and notice that it's talking to a spiritual uh, healing and then look in this one verse and say, oh, that must mean that I'm going to be healed of every single disease that we have. So that is an overview of mm -hmm. the prosperity theology. But some of the problems with it that make it a not a basically make it a false gospel is that a few things. And it's very, very dangerous for people to follow this, this prosperity theology. Number one, it creates a very significant disappointment yeah. in God mm. in the lives of so many people. When you have these teachers that are saying, hey, if you just sow a seed into my ministry, or if you just confess this, or hey, God is going to heal you of that, and then they believe that because they don't know any better. They're younger Christians. They don't know any better. And then someone doesn't get healed. Their father doesn't get healed. Their mother still dies of cancer. And now they're not blaming the church, they're blaming God because they right. feel like God has let them down. And as a result, God is not loving. God is not good. God is not trustworthy. God does not keep his word. And therefore, I don't want to follow God anymore. So it creates a, a very significant dis, uh, disappointment in God. <laughs> but then the bigger part of it is that it really trades places with God, right? Mm. Uh, in other words, the true gospel is such that God has. Uh, done so much for us that in response to what God has done for us, we are to do for him. And we do what God tells us to do. With the prosperity theology, it almost sounds like they're reversing it, where we are able to control the hand of God by pulling certain hands, little, little strings and confessing things. And so now we're putting ourselves in the place of God. Where we can we can create things with our creative, or we can claim it, we can decree it, we can declare it, we can blab it and grab it and whatever. And so now we are controlling God, and we are putting ourselves in the position of God, and we're putting God in the position of a servant, where He merely exists to serve us and to fulfill the things that we create with our mouths. Mm. So it's a very very huge problem. So you mentioned that. And I'm glad you made this distinction because this is what I think adds to how dangerous that this gospel, this false gospel can be, is that it's tied in with the atonement. And you sort of hinted at this when you brought up the verse, by his stripes we are healed. I wonder if you can expand on that a little bit. Talk about, 
you know, historically and biblically what Christians have believed, obviously there's a lot of different metaphors the Bible uses to help us understand what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Um, but, but this idea that we are never supposed to be sick that you find in the prosperity gospel is often, like you mentioned, tied into the atonement. So I wonder if you could focus in on that a little bit, because I'm sure I, I, I always want to be so gracious and gentle to people who are listening who are going, wait a minute, I always pray that verse when I pray for somebody to be healed. I, I, and they, they've just never realized that that's not the right context within which it was originally used. And, um, you know, and if that's you, don't, I don't want you to feel bad, you know, bad or whatever. Because right. um, I, there was a time in my life where I legitimately thought that that verse, that that's exactly what that was about. And every time I prayed for someone to be healed, or if I prayed for myself to be healed, I would uh, bring up that verse and, and declare that, you know, thinking, well, this is what the Bible says. And in a way, you know, that's connected with the atonement. So I wonder if you could just expand on that a little bit for people who might be kind of confused about about this. Yeah. Well, first off, let me let me just briefly talk a little bit about this idea of Jesus healing as well, because I think there's a very very huge misconception um, in the in terms of Jesus and healing. And so, if you read through the New Testament, it's easy or the Gospels, it's easy to think that Jesus just healed every single person right. that he came in contact with. And we have to really understand that that is not necessarily the case. What is the case is that the people that Jesus did choose to heal are therefore highlighted and brought to the surface of the, of the biblical text. And so therefore we can read about the individual stories of the people that he decided to heal. But there's no evidence that every single person that Jesus saw that was sick throughout his whole earthly ministry, he decided to heal them. Um, now there are verses, they said all who were sick that he healed. But that might be all the people that are in a certain locale, but not right. necessarily general. So that's the first thing. But now when we look at this context, and this is a really good lesson for people who really need to learn how to study the scriptures in their context, as opposed to just taking one verse out of the context. When we look at Isaiah 53, everything in that chapter really talks about salvation from sin and, and how Christ well, the Messiah mm -hmm. at the time we didn't know it's Christ. At the at, later on, the Messiah is going to take on our sin. So it says, uh, "Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows; yet we esteemed Him stricken, right, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions." transgressions yeah. So transgressions is clearly a word that talks about sin. He was bruised for our iniquities. There's another word for sin. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him. So peace talks about having peace with God and having a relationship with God. And then by his stripes, we are healed. And then after that, all we like sheep have gone astray. That's another reference for sin. We have turned everyone to his own way. That's sin. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And, and so when you look at this passage, the, the immediate context is all about salvation. It's all about, um, it's all about sin. And the fact that our sin will be laid upon uh, the Messiah, the coming Messiah, and he will take that sin away. So there's nothing in this text that talks about physical healing. Yeah, and, and the sad thing is, is I think you made such a good point about the effect this can have on people, because I have known people who've walked away from God because they were told, hey, you're supposed to never be sick. You're supposed to have yeah. tons of money. And and that's the thing we have to understand about this, this false gospel as well, is that it's not just about sickness, but it's also about financial prosperity. I've, I've heard yeah. pastors with my own ears say, you know, I, I used to work in this... Um, 
It was a very poor neighborhood in New York City in the Lower East Side, uh, very poor people for the most part. And this preacher came in one time to this really small church that I was uh, helping out with, which was not a prosperity church, but you know there was just such a mixed bag in that area. And so this pastor drove in with this BMW and he told all of these people, hey, I brought my BMW here to this place because I want you all to see you know, where you can actually go in your, in your walk with God. If you just get your faith level up, you'll have a BMW sitting out there as well. And and I just remember thinking, what is he talking about? Because it just, again, it's just, it, it was so contrary to... Um, to that. So I think that there can be people who might be a little bit sucked into the health part of it, other people sucked in a little bit more to the wealth part of it, but it's all sort of tied together with basically saying, look, the price Jesus paid on the cross was your prosperity in every area, which which of course, you know, has been grossly misinterpreted to have to do with money and with health and things like that. And so um, yeah. I think it also leaves people with a really weak theology of suffering. So in all these deconstruction yes. stories we're seeing, you, you see people, they go through a difficult, maybe a death in the family, or they look out and they see some horrific natural disaster where people really suffered, and they don't have yes. a category to put that in. So I wonder if you could talk even a little bit about what the true gospel gives you when you actually go through hard times versus what the prosperity gospel will give you. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so I want to make sure I, I I remember that question, but I also want to talk a little bit about this idea of prosperity. The reason why we can't claim that as a promise is that any promise that God gives us in his word has to work in every part of the world. So those of us in the Western part of the world, in the United States, we could easily see how we could claim the idea of prosperity simply because even the most poor people here have food, yeah. have clothing, so on and so forth. For so we could even see, but the majority of the world is living in poverty. Yes. So, it, does that mean that all of these Christians and the majority of the world are not in God's will, or they're living outside of God's will, or they're living in sin, or or they don't have enough faith to believe God because they're not prosperous? No, it's just that they're living in a third world country, and right. that's just the way it is right there. So these promises from God that they claim. We have to make sure that they work, not just in America, yes. but they have to work in all other parts of the world. So that's the first thing. Um, now, in terms of the gospel itself, you know, um, now rephrase your question again about- So just, you know, talking about suffering and how oh, often right. people yeah. will walk away from God because they don't have a category to put their suffering into. So what does the true gospel give us versus what the prosperity gospel gives us? Yeah, thank you for that. So, you know, the idea of suffering, you know, we, we have to look at the fact that, number one, Jesus himself suffered. And he also talked about how, you know, those of us who follow him will also be persecuted because he said, hey, you know, they're not going to just persecute you. They're persecuting me. Uh, you know, we, we also know that uh, the Bible says that um, all who live godly will be persecuted. Uh, there's sickness is a part of the fall of man. It's it's. It's tied back to the original sin of Adam in the garden. And so until the original sin is done away with, let me just say it this way, until the presence of sin is done away with, because the power of sin can be overcome through living through the Holy Spirit, meaning we don't have to submit to that sin anymore. The penalty for sin, meaning 
death and separation from God going to hell has now also been overcome because of the promise of Christ and the sacrifice of Christ. But unfortunately, the presence of sin in our lives is still very active. And one of the effects of that is sickness and all these things. So the gospel is all about us trusting Christ that he took our sin, a debt that we were unable to pay, and he said, hey, even though you should have be you should be receiving punishment for all the ways that you've offended me in your entire life, I'm not going to punish you. Instead, I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to allow my heavenly father to punish me to take out all of his anger and all of his wrath on me so that if you just place your faith in me, then you will not have to experience the penalty of sin. That is the nature of the gospel, not how much we can get from God. Yeah, It's, I've already gotten the best gift I could ever get from God, and that's eternal salvation. And I think that's why when you read testimonies of Christians in other countries who have been severely persecuted, there is such a deep abiding joy, and shall we even say prosperity, that they have in their souls, that I think that many of us who live in the West in more affluent areas probably we, we we haven't you know experienced that depth of persecution and suffering and and it was I was just reading Rod Dreer's book I've mentioned this a couple times on podcasts lately and um, just because it was so impactful but he he was interviewing Christians all over Eastern Europe and places where communism came in and took over and they were persecuted and in every case he said they they just had this joy so deep down inside of them and and I mean you know let's just be real it it just makes no sense logically I mean biblically it doesn't make sense but it makes no sense logically that 2000 years of Christian history it's like nobody figured faith out until you know 1980 in the affluent rich west really I mean yeah. really people yeah. <laughs> that does not yeah. Yeah. That does not work at all. So yeah, exactly. And and I don't want to cut you off, but that that's the that's the part that really frustrates me is that <laughs> these people who have lost loved ones, who now are not only disappointed in God, but they're also and I forgot to bring this out before they're also made to feel like the reason why they did not get healed or the reason why their loved one didn't get healed is because they didn't have enough faith. So now their pain of losing a loved one is not compounded. Because it's like, well, hey, if you just would have prayed harder, right. if you would have just had enough faith, if you would have just believed it more, then God could have healed this person. So now they're 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 experiencing pain, they're frustrating themselves, they're confused, they're angry at God, and then, like you said, they deconvert, and yeah. it's just a huge. Um, it's just a huge mess that I want to encourage as many people as possible to stay away from. Yeah, and it's a, it's an American export. This isn't 2,000 years of church history preaching this pros- prosperity gospel. This is an American uh, modern invention that, that we're exporting to the rest of the world. And so I think it's really good for people to be aware of it. And, um, and just like me, you know, have the humility. I realized I had a little bit of that influence when it came to what I believed about sickness. And I think it just takes humility for all of us to go, wow, that was not biblical. That was wrong. I'm sorry, Lord. I repent for, for thinking that. And please show me, uh, the truth and then get in the word and, and get some good Bible studies and good Bible teaching. Um, you know, I think that's a, that's a good path for people. But speaking of this false gospel, we've called it a false gospel, which is what it is. Um, one of the, I, I don't know if you get this as well, but one of the big pushbacks I get when I talk about things like progressive Christianity or the prosperity gospel or something along those lines is people will say, 
uh, you know, well, you shouldn't call people out by name. And for the record, I'm very slow to do that, by the way. I, I'm not going to name someone as a false teacher unless they're actually teaching something that's going to hinder people from getting saved. You know, not just somebody that I might disagree with on a, a secondary issue that I might actually feel really passionate about, uh, but I, I won't. I mean, I'm very slow to do that. But um, should Christians call false teachers out by name? Why should we or shouldn't we? And um, and and what can we what kind of can we offer to help people think through in, in a culture where it's really unpopular to really to say anything negative about what somebody says or does? You know, I mean, that's the culture we live in right now. It's very unpopular to name someone and say, "Hey, they're wrong," uh, let alone mm-hmm. bring that into the Christian culture. So, so should we be calling false teachers out by name? And and how should we do it? And what is the benefit? Of doing that. Yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm a lot like you, contrary to what people may think when they go to my YouTube channel. Um, you know, I'm a lot like you. I'm very careful to mention people by name. Um, you know, I have about 453 videos on my YouTube channel, and I think I have about five videos out of 453 videos that have actually mentioned a person by name. So it's clear that, you know, I have a track record of not wanting to do that. Right. Um, and even, even in situations when I have done that, it's typically been in response to something that that person has either done or said recently, where I almost have to call them out by name in the video. So for instance, you know, when Benny Hinn said that he was repenting of the prosperity gospel and that was huge news, right? Um, so I had to make a video on that and I had to use his name. You know, recently Paula White, you know, uh, did yeah. a, a prayer service after the election. And, you know, so the question is, you know, is it biblical to do that? You know, when we look at the scriptures, there are is definitely a precedent set by Jesus and the New Testament writers, as well as um, the Apostle Paul, uh, of people that they've called out. You know, Paul talked about Demas and his love the world and, you know, uh, different people that have done him, you know, harm or different false teachers they need to stay away from. You know, we can we can look at scriptures where they've done that. Um, third John, I believe it's either third John or second John. I think it's maybe second John where, where John calls out um, the atrophis, um, you know, for as, as somebody that's causing trouble in the church and need to stay away from him and follow the example of Demetrius. And so there's definitely a precedent for to do for what to for um, calling people out by name. But here's the way I do it. I typically don't label individual people as false teachers. I would prefer to bring to surface false teachings. Mm -hmm. It's a very big difference, right? So if I were to do a video tomorrow and I said, you know, Jesus didn't really die on the cross. Let's say I was ignorant and I didn't really know that. I would hate for somebody to discredit my entire ministry and say, Alan Parr is a false teacher. Yeah. But they would be within their right to say, Alan Parr is promoting a false teaching. And let me point it out. That's good. The reason why this is so important is because some of the biggest names of Christianity are promoting some of the biggest heresies. Mm. And as a result, they are spreading this to literally millions Mm. and millions of people around the world. And so if people aren't aware of their favorite TV personality preacher 
and what they really believe and what they're really teaching, they're going to go on and either A, continue to listen to this person or B, just be ignorant. And in other words, if I mention in my name, at the very minimum, they can say, let me look further. Let mm-hmm. me look into this and see what this person really believes. Let me go to their statement of faith. Let me let me listen to some of their other things. And they can start to develop discernment. Doesn't mean that they shouldn't listen to this person anymore, but they should listen to this person with a lot more discernment, knowing that they're promoting something that's false. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that it's necessary when, when God puts it on a leader's heart to do that. And what advice would you give to Christians who are trying to think through how to use discernment biblically? What is discernment and how can Christians... Uh, get better at it? How can we How can we refine our discernment skills? Yeah, you know, so I think there's really a simple solution to that is, um, you know, the Bible talks in Hebrews 5 about, um, you know, not uh, uh, talks about um, by this time you should be teaching others, but instead you have the need for me to teach you the elementary truths of the word of God. So he says, hey, instead of drinking milk, it's time for you to start eating solid food so that by practice, you'll have your senses trained to discern good from evil, right? So I think A, the I mean, for me, and I sh- forgot to share this earlier in my testimony, which I'm glad I have a chance to do it now, is um, in college, I said I was discipled by a man. For the first three years of my real relationship with Christ, I was in a heavily charismatic prosperity driven mm. church. And that's part of my testimony, which I left out earlier. It's part of why I'm so passionate now about helping other people because I know how caught up in it I was, yeah. but I didn't know any better. Mm-hmm. I didn't read my Bible. I wasn't able to l- listen to what this sermon was saying and then compare it to what I read in my devotional this morning because I wasn't strong enough. But once I started studying the Bible for myself, I started seeing dis- uh, uh, inconsistencies with what the Bible says, for instance, to give you a quick one, the Bible says that if they're speaking in tongues, there should only be one person doing it, taking a turn, and there should be interpretation. When I'm reading that, and then the next day I go to church, and the whole church is speaking in tongues, and the pastor at the same speaking time, in tongues, yeah, yeah, at the same time, and nobody's interpreting anything. That's when discernment kicks in, and you're like, wait, what? Didn't I just read that something isn't right here? Mm. And that's just one instance. And and studying the scriptures and listening to sound biblical teachers is the best way to build up that discernment so you can mm. really see what truth is and what's not. That's really good stuff. We're going to do one final question before we go to our subscriber portion, our Patreon uh, supporter portion. So if we look back through church history, uh, a case could certainly be made that Christians used the Bible to advocate for slavery But then at the same time, a case could be made that there were Christians who used the Bible to fight against slavery. We know that this is William Wilberforce, you know, it was his biblical interpretation that was like, no, this is not okay with God. And I think that this can be a subject that's very confusing for Christians. So, Alan, does the Bible support slavery? And what's a great way for Christians to think through this topic biblically? (laughs) <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, if there's one ver- if there's one video on my channel that I catch more slack for is the video on, you know, um, you know, does God support or condone slavery? I forget the exact title. Mm. And primarily people are just shocked because I'm an African-American man and the stance that I took on that. And 
And the problem is that, you know, people are really not understanding the concept of biblical slavery. Mm-hmm. So let me let me let me say it this way. Um does the Bible support slavery? Depends on what we're talking, how we define slavery. So first and foremost, we have to understand that there are a lot of things in the scriptures that were never in God's intended will. Mm-hmm. And God knew that these things were going to happen. And so as a result, he had to establish laws in place to regulate sinful behavior of man, even though it was never in his will. Divorce is an example. Mm-hmm. Divorce is not in the will of God, but God knows our hearts. And he knows that they, people are going to choose to get divorced. So what did God do? He had to, through Moses, establish certain specific Old Testament mosaic laws about whether you can write your wife a certificate of divorce and what happens with that. So just because there are laws in the Bible about something doesn't mean that God's intent was for you to do this. Mm. It's just God saying, hey, this is how I want you to respond, community of Israel, when this happens. Because I have a lot of people that will say, well, you're saying that God condones slavery in the Bible because there's laws. I said, no, God is trying to manage this. Now, yeah. once again, how do we how do we how do we dis- discuss slavery? How do we define it? Clearly, God condone, or excuse me, God condemns, I'll use the wrong word. Clearly, God condemns any form of kidnapping, yes, oppression of a race. That is not found biblical anywhere that God would condone some that sort of behavior. And there, I could go into scriptures where we talk yeah. about I mean, that. it was even punishable by yeah. death. Like human trafficking, slavery in that sense was actually condemned. It was punished by death. Exactly. Yeah. Kidnapping. So that's mm-hmm. the thing. So if we know that's the case, then we know that the slavery that we saw in our country was not something that God condoned, right? Right. So, we, so then we have to say, okay, then what was going on during that time? And basically, it was just indentured servitude. So slavery... And maybe we'll use a less uh, a, a offensive word, servanthood. Mm-hmm. Servanthood in the Old Testament was really a a um, a way to preserve and care for the poor. Because if I'm poor and I owe somebody money, or someone in my family owed somebody money and they died, and I and therefore my family still owes them money, I can't pay you back. I don't have the money. I'm I, I don't have it to give it to you. But what I can do is work. I can give you my time so that if I can work it off, then I can pay off my debt. And the Bible is very clear about how to treat slaves and to treat them, you know, with honor and different things like that. So really and truly, that was really the system that we saw. And by the way, it was volitional. Mm -hmm. You chose to you chose to be a servant or a slave of someone else for an intended purpose of paying off a debt um, versus what we see in our country where people were kidnapped. So it was Mm -hmm. a very different system um, uh, that we saw there. I I just saw something in the last year or two where the ESV translation committee, so that that committee of scholars that translates for the ESV Bible, they're having a discussion right now about that old, in the Old Testament, I believe the word is ebed, 
that, that is translated into English as slave. And they're actually having discussions about changing the English translation from slave to servant because that's actually more of an accurate description of what was actually going on. Like you mentioned, you know, indentured, indentured servanthood. So it'd be interesting to kind of track that and see what ends up happening there with the, the ESV Bible. But we're gonna go into our uh, subscriber portion for people who support the ministry on Patreon. If you want to see the rest of this, we're gonna talk for a few more minutes with Alan par today. And with every guest that I have, we do a little bonus segment for our Patreon supporters. If you're not on Patreon with us, you can go to patreon.com slash Alisa Childers. You can check it out. There's different tiers available. You can join at tier one to get the monthly ministry update video. Tier two gives you early access. I believe it's tier four that you're going to get the bonus content, but there's Facebook pages you can join. There's little goodies you can get throughout the year. So definitely go to patreon.com slash Alisa Childers to check out the different options, and we'd love to have you a part of the community. And Alan, as we close out this segment, I'd love to just ask you if you if you could just leave some encouragement for our listeners today. Uh, what would you say to as just some parting words as they go about their day, and uh, you know maybe as they're thinking through some of these questions for the first time? Yeah, you know I think the the biggest thing is to to make sure that we are spending time with God on a regular mm-hmm. basis. And I know that sounds very very you know. Um, just kind of matter of fact, but really and truly, I think that you would probably agree with me that you didn't get to where you are in your knowledge and your maturity Mm -hmm. and your spiritual walk, just going to church and hanging out with Christians, right? That's great. That's part of it. But if you really, really want to have that discernment, if you really want to be able to pray over people's lives and it be impactful, if you really want to give people godly wisdom and be seen as somebody that people can trust that you're going to give them godly wisdom. It all comes from your time with God, how much time you're spending with God. And then the last thing I'll say is just just as best you can, put yourself in a place where you're listening to sound doctrine. Mm-hmm. And if you have a question what that is or who those people are, I'm sure you can reach out to um, Alyssa and she can give you probably a list of 10 to 15 YouTubers or even you know pastors and preachers of this day that are really, really sound, that we trust, that mm-hmm. have good, solid theology, so you can really get God's truth in your spirit. That's good. Who's your favorite Bible teacher, if you had to pick one? Oh, man. You know, um, I, 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 I'm I an old school guy, and I, I really, when I was coming along, I was really impacted by John MacArthur, mm-hmm. um, Tony Evans, Charles Stanley, mm-hmm. Chuck Swindoll. Um, I mean, those guys were people who really, really had a significant effect on my faith as a young believer, and none of them probably have any idea that they have. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I used to eat just just soak up every single thing that they yeah. had, and I still I still like to listen to them. That's great. And I, if I had to pick a favorite, just Bible teacher, it would probably be Alistair Begg. Mm-hmm. Have you listened to yeah. much Alistair Begg? Yes. Yeah. 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 He was from the Cleveland area, uh, his church. Uh, and yeah. I, I went to school and I went to high, college in Cleveland. So, oh, very okay, great. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, if uh, you're watching and listening, definitely check out Alan's YouTube channel, The Beat by Alan Parr on YouTube. Uh, join the, how many subscribers? Like hundreds of thousands or over a million? Or it's, it's a lot, yeah. right? It's not, it's not a million. We, we just recently passed over 500,000. That's so amazing. amazing. That is amazing. Absolutely and you can amazing. go to alanparr.com. Alan, thanks so much for being on the show today. Thanks so much. Yep. God bless.
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.